For those of you that are visiting, my name is Mark, and I've had the privilege of filling this pulpit on most Sundays uh, since 2010, and I um, feel like I'm going to do that till they uh, kick me out, okay? So uh, maybe this could be the last Sunday if you don't like what you hear, I guess. I don't know. Seven words on the cross uh, are not actually words, they're phrases. And whoever started talking about this century ago, for whatever reason, called them words, and so we call them words. And we went through the first two words of the cross last week when we talked uh, the first word of Jesus was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then the second word of Jesus was, uh, truly, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we linked those two together and said, God is good. And he showed that through both of those verses. And that message is on the internet if you'd like to catch up with us. We're on the third word of the cross today. It's found in the book of John. There's a little disagreement among biblical scholars on the order of all of these seven words, but there's not too much disagreement, and I don't think it makes any difference at all. But the third word of the cross is found in the 19th chapter of John, and the Bible says, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Verse 18, there they crucified him, and him and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. So it wasn't far off in the country someplace, and a lot of people saw this. It was near the city, and the sign was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. Why don't you write this man claimed to be the king of the Jews? And then Pilate says, uh, I've written what I've written. Okay, verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled when the Old Testament said, they divided my clothes among them and casted lots for my garment as they prophesied about the crucified Christ. So this is what the soldiers did. Verse 25, near the cross, there's our little phrase there where I assume we're the hymn writer, took that inspiration. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, who's not named, but in other Gospels we know that that is John. And simply here, just refer to, and isn't fascinating the way Jesus, excuse me, in John's Gospel, the way John refers to himself. We, we just spoke eight weeks on identity. So John refers to himself this way. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, and here's our third word from Jesus on the cross, Woman, here is your son. And verse 27 says, And to the disciple, he says, Here is your mother. And the scripture says, From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So verse 26 is the first part here of our third word on the cross. And it's a tough word, isn't it? 
Why would, why would Jesus refer to his mother with a word that is so not tender, doesn't seem loving? Seems like he could have chosen a lot more family-type words to be able to choose and just refer to her as woman. And, and when you read from all the smart people, and when I say that, I don't say that in a smart-ass way to put them down. But seriously, when you read from the smart people that spend their life studying about this, they basically will tell you that this was not an uncommon address in the first century. It's unbelievably uncommon for us today. Um, and I, I assume I have to take the biblical scholar's word for that but it still seems to me to be something of a very harsh address if if my mother were able to come to church today and I walked her in and I introduced uh, her to uh, one of you and sit and said uh, here woman this is Rick I mean you, you laugh about that don't you and because that's just so out of the ordinary for us but the biblical scholars want us to be, believe it was the ordinary thing for that day and time. I've had trouble for the last 25 years buying that. And the reason I say 25 years because this was the first message that I ever preached in 1995. And as I was trying to, to come up with that message and wrestled with this 25 years ago, just the way I wrestled with it this week, I just really struggled on why Jesus would term use his mother with that harsh and that... Um, in my opinion, rude of an address. And 25 years ago, I, I am going to say the same thing that I said today. And I, I've not been able to get a better answer for that than, than what I feel like God talked to me about 25 years ago. And I still have that message on CD and I listen to it and I sound like a little 13-year-old as I talk. <laughs> But in the, in the use of this word woman, um, I, just, I just wonder. I just wonder. I don't have letters behind my name like the biblical scholars do. So I, you take this for just Mark Atherton, okay? But I just wonder, was Jesus, the Savior of the world, severing? his earthly relationship with his mother. And now basically saying, woman, you have to come to me like everyone else has to come to me now. You've known me as a son. I nursed at your breast. You changed whatever they had for diapers back then. You watched me run around and play with the other kids. You looked for me at 12 years old when I got lost in the temple. You saw me grow up into a young man and become an apprentice, carpenter apprentice of my father. You saw me start my ministry at 30 and you heard me teach and you heard me heal and, and all of that. You viewed me through the eyes of your son. But I'm wondering and just wondering if Jesus is saying to Mary here, woman, our relationship has changed. And you've got to come to me now like everyone else has to come to me. A sinner in need of a Savior. And that's a tough word, especially if you come from a Catholic background. If you come from a Catholic background today, that makes the hair rise up on the back of your neck. 
But I'm just wondering here if uh, uh, Jesus in some way is saying that we've had a great relationship in one way, and that was in the Father's plan, but now our relationship must change. And so he does not refer to her as mother. He does not refer to her even as Mary. He says, woman, behold your son. And what he was obviously doing there was telling John basically to take care of my mother here. I'm, I'm dying. I'm leaving this earth. And most biblical scholars feel that Joseph was dead by this time. And he was providing for his mother in her old age. But I just wonder, <laughs> as I trying to make heads or tails of this word woman, was the father in some way here severing the relationship and saying, now you can no longer look at me as your son. You must receive me as the Savior. You must receive me as the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who's called the Christ. And you must come to me the way every other man, woman, boy, and girl must come to me as well. And maybe it would hopefully prompt Mary to make a proclamation one day that may be similar to the one that Thomas made about three or four days later when Thomas saw the scars in his hands and the scar on his side and bowed at his feet and said, uh, My Lord and my God. And was Mary going to have to make that same proclamation as well? And their relationship was changing from mother to son, from mother, from Mary, from woman to Savior. It's a fascinating thought, and I really haven't been able to get it out of my mind for 25 years on the fact that could this be the reason that he was calling her mother. And this could be the reason that, that she would have to come to him and say words the way Thomas did. My God my God, my Lord and my God. Do you, how hard it would have been. Mary knew he wasn't any ordinary boy because she knew he was immaculately conceived. Mary knew he wasn't any other boy, but she would have to come to him now as her God. Do you realize in the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do you realize that God died on the cross that day? I can't explain that. Uh, the, the Bible cl clearly says to us that we have one God that exists in three persons. They're not three different gods. We, we see the earliest of that is from the first chapter of Genesis where the Bible says that the one speaking for God says, let us make man in our own image. But in the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is God. God, not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit, but God the Son. And on that day, Thomas must have seen something when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. God was dying on the cross. The same God that spoke this world into existence. The same God that waved his hands and mountain ranges appeared. The same God that, that, that scooped out the valleys. The same God that says, this far shall the oceans come and no farther. That God died on the cross for his creation. God died for you, Jeff Blackaby. God died for you, Pat Carey. God died for you, Rick Stolle. God died for you, 
Tiffany Dennis. In the mystery of the Trinity, in a way that I'll never, ever, ever be able to understand, God was on that cross. Not God the Father, and not God the Holy Spirit, but God the Son was on that cross. And Mary would have to look at him in a different way than she would ever have to look to him. And maybe, just maybe, just maybe was the reason for an address to her that seems rather harsh. I don't know who to give this credit for, but I read it as an early Christian and it impacted me. Some say he was a good teacher, but good teachers don't claim to be God. Some say he was just a good example, but good examples don't mingle with prostitutes and sinners. Some say he was a madman, but madmen don't speak the way he spoke. Some say he was a fanatic, but fanatics don't draw children to themselves or reach out to touch lepers and heal them. Some say he was a religious phonies, but phonies don't rise from the dead. Some say he was just a phantom, but phantoms can't bleed or die. Some say he was just a myth, but myths don't set the date for our calendar, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Latin, for in the year of our Lord. Napoleon was a military leader in France in the 1600s and never read where he professed to be a Christian and some of the writings after was found after his death said this, I know men and I tell you Jesus Christ was not a man. Now I think in the understanding that we have of Jesus Christ was the God-man, he was God in human flesh, was, does that mean he was half man, half God? I don't know how all of that worked together, but it was all intermingled. He was the God-man dying for our sins. But Napoleon knew enough about him, says he wasn't a man. He wasn't an ordinary man. And then listen to this next one. There is, between Christianity and other religions, the distance of infinity. That's fascinating. Because you'll have people say that all religions are alike. And so, you know, they'll beat up on Christianity and beat up on Christians because we pronounce what the Bible says as a certain exclusivity for Jesus because Jesus plainly says no one comes to the Father except through him. And Napoleon was smart enough to know that. And he says all, all religions aren't alike. There is a distance there is between Christian and other religions the distance of infinity. You go tell a Muslim that Allah died for them, they'll stone you. In the mystery of the Trinity that I will not under, ever understand, somehow God died on the cross that day. And the relationship between son and mother was going to change forever. And Mary was going to have to come up with some type of declaration for her own soul that says, my Lord and my God. The Bible speaks in several different places about the, what we call the divinity of Christ or the deity of Christ. John 1.1 is the most well-known passage of Scripture there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in that whole context, the Word is very plainly Jesus Christ. 1-2 says, he was with God in the beginning. Verse 3 says, 
Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In the mystery of the Trinity, we have God the Father. We have God the Son. We have God the Holy Spirit. Three gods? No. No. One God who exists in three different people. Don't ask me to explain that. Who exists in three distinct persons. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.15 says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 2.9 says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. <laughs> How many? Did I bring that with me? I bet I didn't bring it. The old song that says, Down from his glory. Remember that? Everlasting story, my God and Savior came, and Jesus was his name. And all that song continues in the chorus, says, and all God's fullness dwelleth in him. Mary, um, woman, you've looked at me one way for 33 years. But now you have to look at me different. I'm your Savior, and I'm your God. And you must come to me the way every other person comes to me. John 10, 30, Jesus speaking says this, and this is why he got killed. He didn't get killed because he fed people. He didn't get killed because he healed people. He got killed because he claimed deity. That's why they killed him. He says, I and the Father are one. And they freaked. The religious leaders freaked. And Pilate didn't want to get into any of this religious controversies of the Jewish people, but the religious leaders forced his hand, and him as a politician went on with them and put an innocent man to death simply because he stated the truth. I and the Father are one. So, In this first part of this third word, we, we see where Jesus is telling Mary that all must, all must come to the cross for redemption. If you're near the cross today, you must see it as a place of redemption. You must see it as a place of forgiveness, that every man, woman, boy, and girl has to come to that place in their life. And I ask you today, I don't care what state that you are in. I don't care if you're raised in a Christian home or not. I don't care if your grandmother was a saint and your mother was a saint. I couldn't care less. I don't care if you're a preacher's kid. You've got to come to Jesus the same way everybody else does. As a sinner in need of a Savior. In some way, repeat Thomas's declaration when he said, My Lord and my God. John 1.11 says he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him yet to all who did receive him to those who believed in his name he gave them the right to become children of God now if you hear if you hear the talk about out here in the day in the modern lingo today people will say well that we're all children of God we're all children of God that flies in the face of what the Bible says 
Okay, I understand why people say that. It's a nice little phrase, gives you goosebumps, makes you feel real good about everything, okay? But that's not at all what the Bible says. The Bible says if you receive him, if you believe in his name, he gives you the right to become a child of God. Romans 8 says the same thing, that by faith we cry out, Abba, Father. Mary had to do that. Mary, at a place at that near the cross, she was there and saw it as a place of redemption, a place of forgiveness, a place where she had to come to Jesus the way everyone else was going to have to come to Jesus. And you see that when you get near the cross. But there's something else I think you can see that's right here in that verse. Not only a cross of redemption, not only a a cross that means everyone has to come to Christ of their own free will, man, woman, boy, or girl, even the mother of Jesus, but in the very next passage in in John 19, 27, they finished that third word on the cross, and he said to John, he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And the scripture tells us from that hour, John took Mary into her home. And we can infer, protected her, provided for her until her dying days. So not only do we see in this third word, redemption, that you have to look at the cross and you have to see the dying Savior on the cross that everyone, even his mother, has to come to. You also look at the cross and if you get near enough to the cross as John was, if you get near enough to the cross, you will see the responsibility that the cross gives us all. Not only are we redeemed as we get near the cross, we must accept that responsibility that the cross gives us as well. John was just one of the the only followers that was there by the cross, and and Jesus prophesied that near his death. For in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, he says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And John is the only one there. But Jesus gives John responsibility. Jesus basically says, I'm putting it in my own words, I'm not going to be here on this earth anymore. And John, you have to take my place. John, you have to care for my mother into her dying days. As I've said, biblical scholars feel like Joseph was dead by this time and and needed a male, in that day and time, needed a male to be able to provide for her. So Jesus, in, in effect, is saying, obviously my words, John, I need you to take my place. I'm leaving here, and I need you to take my place. He gives John responsibility here. And doesn't he give all of us that responsibility? He's left. And we're here to take his place as the hands and feet of Jesus. The words that the Bible uses over and over again is the body of Christ. Jesus has left and gone to his heavenly home and, 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 and is no longer walking this earth helping us in a real way, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, the Bible tells us. But, but Jesus is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he asked John to take his place, and in some way, not quite like that, but certainly some way, we take his place on this earth as well as his hands and his feet and his tongue. You see, you can't only come to the cross for redemption. You have to come to the cross for the responsibility the cross gives you. 
Some people just want to be able to wave their flag and, and I'm, I'm forgiven and, and then I can just go out and live my life any way that I want to. The Bible has completely no understanding of that type of Christian. Zero understanding of that type of Christian. I get so irritated, hopefully in a sanctified way. And I could call one person out that is at the Kinsey campus and, and, and this this person we're trying to reach at the Kinsey campus and and about every other post she'll talk about her love for Jesus then about every other post she's cussing and cursing and and I want to say what is wrong we are called to bear his name the word Christian literally means one of Christ Christ's followers And we are left on this earth to take his place and be his hands and be his feet. Empowered by God's Holy Spirit to do something that we could not do in our own right. But we're still left on this earth. And that's the responsibility that the cross gives you. You cannot be redeemed without understanding the responsibility. You cannot be forgiven without being faithful. You cannot be forgiven without accepting the followership. You cannot be born again without understanding that you can become a new person in Jesus Christ. Those things are forever linked together. And you can't read the Bible without seeing that unless you're trying to read something in it that you want your salvation and I want to go then live any way I want. That, the Bible knows nothing about that kind of a Christian. <laughs> That's not a Nazarene message. This is not a holiness message. This is not a Wesleyan message. This is a biblical message. And I could preach this message in any church of any denomination. And people that are honest, biblical people would have to say, amen. This is not any denominational distinctive that we have. This is biblical teaching. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus has risen from the dead and is about to ascend to the Father. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. It's a responsibility. It's the responsibility of the cross. If you're redeemed, you've been given a responsibility. And you cannot separate those two. Or you're a schizophrenic Christian. You're a bipolar Christian and you need medication. And I don't say that in a flippant way at all. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and at the ends of the earth. 1 Peter 4, verse 16 says this. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. That's what we do on Facebook. That's what we do in the workplace. That's what we do in the neighborhood. That's what we do in the soccer field. That's what we do on the basketball court. That's what we do in the grocery store. We bear his name. And the, one of the major issues in all of evangelical Christianity is that we want to get near enough to the cross to be forgiven, but we don't want to be near enough to the cross to accept the responsibility. And that goes for no matter what tribe of Christian you are. And in this third word on the cross, we see 
screaming at us the redemption that comes for has to happen for everyone even mary and then the bible clearly says from that hour john took her into his home the responsibility of being near the cross are you that close to the cross or do you just want to claim your forgiveness and live life any way you want to live if you do i just really can't anywhere and if you can come talk to me i can't find that kind of description of a christian found anywhere in god's word ephesians chapter 4 paul says you know i'm a prisoner of the lord and i urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received well what's that mean how worthy do i have to be to be forgiven that's not what i'm talking about god's god's forgiveness is absolutely free gift of his grace it's our response to that forgiveness that i'm talking about it's our response to what he has done it's our response to his ability we are responsible it's almost like some of you parents have you ever taken your kids on a vacation and you spent thousands of dollars to take them on a vacation somewhere and they started acting up and arguing and getting on your nerves on vacation after you just spent $1,000 and given this free gift of the beach of Florida. And aren't you a little ticked off about it? Because you feel, because of the free gift that given you, there's a responsibility that comes along with that. We understand that. And nowhere in Scripture do I take my forgiveness and run and live my life any way that I want to live it. Ephesians 4.2 continues, Be completely humble. And gentle, be patient, bearing with each other in love. Ephesians 4, 3 says, make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Skip a few verses and you go to Ephesians 4, 11, that says, so Christ himself gave apostles, gave prophets, gave evangelists, gave pastors and teachers. So why has he done all of that? First, uh, chapter 4, verse 12 says, to equip the people for the works of service. So the people of Christ may be built up. That's what he wants them to be. He wants them to be built up. He just doesn't want them to, to sit there and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm forgiven. No, he wants you to be built up. And then, and then 13, verse 13 says, until we all reach unity of the faith and become mature. The Bible calls a new Christian an infant. And it's God's desire that we would become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is the responsibility of being near the cross. This is the responsibility that comes along with redemption. And if your redemption is not only here, but your redemption is here too, you completely understand that. But if your redemption is just here, and it's just a theological fact, you may have a disconnect somewhere. And the Bible says we're supposed to love him with all of our heart soul, mind, and strength. Before there was ever Christians, before there was anybody on the face of the earth ever called a Christian, there was a list of commandments given in Exodus chapter 20. And the third commandment was says, you're not supposed to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you've heard me in the two series we've done in 10 years on 10 commandments say this. That has very little to do with cussing. It has everything to do with don't misuse, misuse his name. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't call yourself a Christian and not act like one. Because he will, hold, will not hold you guiltless for those who do that. That's absolutely the correct interpretation 
of 27. Look it up. You shall not take my name in vain, in a vain, in an empty way. That's what we're talking about. Not posting scripture verses on Facebook, then every other post is cuss this, cuss that. Something is wrong. Who has preached this to these people? What Bible have they read? Or is it just the human condition that wants to do as little as possible to be a Christian? We're called the hands and feet of Jesus. We're called the body of Christ in several places. He's gone. He asked John to take his place. And in some way, we take his place as well. We speak for him. We go where he would go. I got a phone call last night at 9 o'clock from one of our Kinsey friends. His name is Ralph. He says, can you come over? I said, what's going on, man? He said, I just need to talk to somebody. So I was already in bed, but I got out. And I went over to his apartment. And as I was sitting there talking with Ralph, it was just me and Ralph in the whole place. I was praying, you know, I'd never been in this part before in my life. I, I didn't know what was going to happen inside of here. As I was praying, I said, Lord, I don't, I, you know, I know Ralph from Kinsey, but I don't know him from any other place. You know, protect me. I don't know what's up in here. And I was just stupid enough to believe that Jesus would have gone. <laughs> now, I could, I, could, I could argue myself out of that and think in a secular way. Well, you're going to somebody's apartment you don't even know. You, you, you barely know this guy, and you're going to go at 9 o'clock at night going to this apartment. You don't know what state he's in. Yep, I get all that. But I think Jesus would have gone. And I got there, and I sit and talked to Ralph last night. It was just me and Ralph in the whole place. But I quickly realized when I talked to Ralph, I wasn't just talking to Ralph. I was talking to Jacob and Max as well. And he switched back and forth between people the whole time. Ralph is gay. And Ralph was abused by his dad because he was gay. And Jacob has been developed in his personality to defend Ralph. And I'm not sure who Max is, but he's forever 22 years old is what Ralph told me. Ralph was high as a kite. Show me his marijuana. I just think we're the body of Christ. I just think we're the hands and feet of Jesus. And also, God kind of told me as I walked over there, how bad do you want to build a church over here? Are you willing to go in these apartments? Why did we go to Nashville? Why did we go twice to Papua New Guinea? Why did we go to Puerto Rico? Why did we go to Houston? Why did we go to North Carolina? Why did we go to Papua New Guinea? Why did we do shoes against... Uh, uh, choose for the shoeless. Why do we start a campus in Riverside? Why do we start a campus uh, at Kinsey? Why do we do? Why do we give away forty thousand dollars in our one hundred percent offering? Because we are His hands and His feet. It is a responsibility that comes along with redemption, and you see all of that on this third word in the cross. Mary had to come 
to him like everybody else was. And then he gave a responsibility to John, who was close enough to the cross that other disciples weren't, who was close enough to the cross to feel that and to accept that responsibility. And the Bible says from that moment, he took Mary into his home. He accepted that responsibility. And if that responsibility is same and different than all of rest of us. I don't know what your responsibility is. I really don't. I don't know what your response. I'm not here to tell you what your response is. That's between you and God's Holy Spirit. But there is a response to redemption. Faithfulness comes after followership. Forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to faithfulness. Being born again leads to becoming a new person in Jesus Christ. I don't care if you're Nazarene, Baptist, Pentecostal, or Baptocostal. It makes no difference whatsoever. Someone wrote these words, and I'm done. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world, Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he's blessed all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. This is not a message. Hear me. This is not a message to beat anybody up. This is a message to try to explain biblical salvation to you. And I want everybody to have that because that's what gets you to heaven. And I don't want you to have some fake pseudo-gospel that some preacher preached to you one day just to get you in the door. We finish all of our messages at the altar, and as you come to the altar again this morning, you're going to realize that that blood and that body that was shed and broken on the cross was broken for you. It was God's body, God the Son. And as we receive of that communion meal we go and there's a responsibility to that it's a response to his ability it's a response to what he has done for us grace comes before works and i ask you to ponder that today as you come to the table our servers are coming father i've done my best to be able to understand to explain i believe what your word says about being a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ. We come to you for redemption, and every single one of us needs that. We're lost without it. But that redemption somehow spawns responsibility in our life. That forgiveness somehow spawns faithfulness in our lives. That forgiveness somehow spawns followership in our lives. Help us to get it right in our head, and maybe it'll make it that difficult 18 inches to our hearts. Help us now as we come around the table in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.